it looks like a lot of balls dropping all the time, you know, neglecting a billion things. There were little girls in hijabs, me giving me high fives over kind of the fence. And I just felt, I looked into their eyes and it felt so meaningful and right. And I just, like it, it gives me goosebumps to know that they got to see that and I got to do that. Something that you wouldn't have seen at that age, I imagine. No, and going to the MCG always felt a little bit scary. I mean, it's colossal and, and it probably does for little kids, but it always felt like we were entering some other world. I know this is really a bit raw, but I remember feeling, I remember thinking, oh God, like, the world needs to change. When my daughter was born and one of the first things I looked at was what does her, what her skin colour is, my partner is white. And I felt relief when I saw that she was quite light. It is something that I think as women, we have to really get better at in in really lifting each other up in mm. whatever choices we make and validating each other's choices. Rana Hussein is a social inclusion specialist, broadcaster, presenter, writer, and one of the Outer Sanctum podcast crew. She's also a program director at Champions of Change and makes regular appearances on ABC radio and television. She's also a mother and a very good person. She does the sort of work that I can't help but think it'd be hard to switch off from because the scope is so big and the outcome's so important. So as a mother, how does she find balance? How did she break into the highly competitive sports media industry? And as a Muslim woman, what has not being represented in media and society taught her about how she wants to foster her daughter's identity, goals and aspirations? Whether you're a parent or not, we can all learn something from Rana and we really could have chatted for hours. But she's got work to do. I'm Lucinda, this is Ready or Not, and here is the amazing in every way, Rana Hussein. Hi, Rana. Thank you for being here. We used to work together, so it's really nice to see you. But for those that don't know you, can you start by introducing yourself and your family? Yes. Well, I'm Rana Hussein. I'm an inclusion and belonging specialist and I work in sport and media. And I have a little seven-year-old daughter called Hawa. Beautiful. And so if you take me back to university, Rana, you have a Master of Social Work from Melbourne University. Tell me a little bit about University Rana and what her career ambitions were. It, it's so weird. Like that question is so interesting for me because I wasn't ambitious when I went to uni in mm. the sense of like I had a clear goal and I knew where I was going and I knew the steps or anything like that. It was all very vague and open. But I was ambitious in that I knew I wanted to do something meaningful. Mm. I knew I wanted to do something important. But what that was, I had no idea. But I knew it, it had to mean something to me. Mm. Um, and I, I knew I was never going to have kind of a career that was, and, the, and I have no judgment around this. And just mm. knew for me that if, for me to feel fulfilled, the actual work that I had to do had to be quite personal and meaningful to me. Mm. So it's more that you needed to do well in a passion rather than do well for the sake of doing well. Exactly. As that's never, never been me. It's always if I care about something, then I get really kind of driven and, and mm. push myself really hard. So I started out in a creative arts degree and that was more around, I think, self-discovery and exploring the world. And I, like I had certain things in my mind that I still haven't achieved, like a book, like I definitely mm. want to write a book. And every year I get kind of closer to doing it and find pathways and what I want to write about. But I was always raised with the idea that if you're going to work, you know, my mum was a career woman, but she always kind of instilled in us, if you're going to work, make sure it's in service to society. So mm -hmm. sort of that's what I always had in the back of my mind, but I had no idea what that was going to be. And so my first degree, like I said, was with more around 
passion and creativity and exploration, really. Amazing. So then you have had a really big career to date in media work and diversity and inclusion work. Can you tell us a bit about your career? Yeah, so so I started out at uni and again, even uni, I think was a newer sort of, I felt like I had to do uni, um, mm. but if I, if I really had my own choice and had my time again and my parents would have let me, I would have absolutely traveled and, mm. and passed uni for a bit. Like that just was really what I wanted to do, but it sort of wasn't possible for me at that time. So went to uni and did a creative arts degree. And I think that's where I learned that I was a feminist mm-hmm. uh, and I learned about gender politics and representation and feminism and media and, and how we, how the stories that we tell ourselves is kind of what shapes how we think about the world. And so I, you know, immersed myself in all of that and I finished that degree and I had a really bumpy 20s. It wasn't kind of, you know, most people have a rollicking youth and uni life. It really wasn't that. It was for a lot of personal reasons, relationship stuff, you know, I was a part of arranged marriage processes. It was all kind of very complex and challenging for me. So uni was like a place of freedom for me so that was Mm. how I kind of went through uni so it wasn't ever about studying or marks or anything I just sort of made my way through and then I kind of got to the point where I had to make a decision about what I wanted to do probably start earning some money and I started working at a primary school because people always said oh you'd make a great teacher Mm. I wasn't really sure that I'd wanted to be a teacher. So I went and worked at a primary school as a teacher aide to see if it was actually what I wanted to do. And then, you you know, sort of thought, oh, this would be a good way to earn some money and Mm. discover what it's like. And I realized that I didn't want to be a teacher. Mm. (laughs) The idea of, you know, telling kids to line up straight and, you know, be quiet really didn't gel with me. But what did was getting to know the kids and hearing their stories. And I was really good at just sitting and listening and being with them and kind of meeting them where they were and helping them move through things and issues. So I started to kind of hang out with the school counsellor and asked her what she did and how she got to do her job because I really fell in love with it. Turns out she did a social work degree and I started to look into it and thought, okay, this is, this is what I'm going to do because it wasn't mm-hmm. straight up counselling. It was community development. It was systems thinking. It was looking at society as well as individuals and how does society impact on an individual that really she would have had such an interesting insight to growing up in an Australian as a Muslim right like you'd firsthand seen how that can work and not work absolutely it was Mm. all about healthcare and well-being on a like on a lot of different levels so Mm. how do systems work for people but then how you know what shapes their identity but then you know, what do they need? And there's very practical ways of being a social worker, but then there's also that kind of more philosophical side. So I went off and did a master of social work at Melbourne Uni and then went straight back to the school. It happened really organically. The counsellor got pregnant and was going on maternity leave. Oh, wow. So I ended up taking over her spot. She stayed, ended up, you know, not coming back. So then I stayed in the role and I was there for about five years and really loved it. And it was working with young Muslim kids. So it was all about understanding them, their context. And it was very much, you know, to your point for me, looking at a young runner and <laughs> I guess trying to pass things on and be, make the world better and make, help them with their experiences. But as I kept doing that, I started to realize that it wasn't necessarily about just helping them. It was about how they saw themselves in the world, but also how the world saw them. I've always been a footy fan. So I started volunteering for the AFL as a multicultural ambassador. And, you know, that was just a bit of fun. But more and more, I realized it was something that I was passionate about. So again, you know, I just kind of followed passion and kept getting more and more involved and I always felt like I had more to say and do. And then 
you know, Adam Goods started to get booed and I got really frustrated and angry that I didn't feel like people were having the conversation that needed to be had, which was around racism. And so mm-hmm. eventually I decided that I could do more and quit my job <laughs> and just launched it a career in sport and said to, you know, the one person I knew at the AFL, if there was ever anything to do, I would do it. I don't care where it mm-hmm. is. Just, I know if I'm in there, it'll, it, I'll make something of it and I'll do something with it. So I landed at Richmond and I sort of went from there, started to kind of work in the community space in sport and discovered inclusion and belonging and I haven't really looked back. Amazing. So how did the media side of your career come into it? So once I landed in sport, I realized there's not very many people like me in sport and luckily there are more now, but at the time it wasn't really many people and, and I felt really kind of out of the ordinary in sport Mm. and obviously other people saw that too and so you know you know the media they need people to talk and different angles and so Mm -hmm. I ended up being on the ABC once for like John Fame's conversation hour and it just snowballed a producer that saw me there and then said had heard me and said oh do you want to come on this podcast called the outer sanctum which is a feminist footy podcast and a big part um, of your life now too which we'll a get big to. part of my life now I guessed it on their show and it was kind of you know love at first sight with them and then I just kind of kept doing it and eventually ended up being one of the hosts and part of the team but that that's how it began for me it was just you know you've got a different story in sport to tell and and you know in all honesty it was me never saying no you know anytime anybody asked I just thought, yep, I can do that. Even if I didn't know how to do it, I said yes and just Mm. kept going. Not because I wanted to be famous or anything, but because that was the reason I was there. I wanted Mm. to represent people like me. So Mm. it just kind of snowballed. And and luckily for me, as you can tell, I can talk. So it's a great talker. (laughs) And I mean that in a sincere, nice way, not in a rambling way. You're a great conversationalist and that's why I loved working with you. Can you tell us a bit about your current role at Champions of Change, I believe it's called, and also your podcast work with the Outer Sanctum crew? Yeah. So, you know, I, you know, my career in sports started as a fan engagement and marketing job at Richmond Footy Club, which very quickly turned into, you know, more community engagement and then went on to work at Cricket Australia where I met you. And then I, and now I sort of consult for a number of different organizations or sporting organizations mostly and work at Champions of Change, which is a gender equality not-for-profit that works across industries with CEOs. So Mm. basically, you know, it really is about change and how do you create change in society? And there's so many different ways to do that. You know, there's dismantling the system, there's throwing stones from the outside, there's advocacy there's being on the inside of organizations, which I have done for so many years. And Champions of Change is really about going to the heart of power. And, you know, the people who with a lot of the power at the moment are CEOs who have the ability to change workplaces and make them more equitable. So I run the sports group of Champions of Change. So I work across the sports industry now with sports CEOs to really help them navigate change and also kind of pushing them along to drive the change as well. It's such a big job. And also I've just thought on the spot about that you were the game day host with someone else, I believe. So a co-host at the T20 World Cup. Tell me about that. You've always been a footy and cricket fan. You're at the G hosting game day. Tell us about it. Oh my gosh. Well, yeah. And you know, the media stuff has always been kind of side hustle, but more and Mm. more has become kind of equal parts what I do Mm. so I have a number of different things that I do in the media biggest one is or the kind of most consistent one is podcasting with the outer sanctum which I love Mm -hmm. but I do a lot with the ABC on ABC breakfast and radio but recently I was asked to match day hosts which is basically just being on the ground talking Mm. to the fans in the stadium for the T20 World Cup and now the Summer of Cricket test matches. I just oh, did amazing. And I'm about to do Boxing Day, which is kind of incredible. Mm-hmm. And that is like 
a really different gig to what I'm used to. Like, mm. you know, I'm so, my favorite thing is radio and podcasting. I love the audio medium. That's just spectacular. Mm. So to stand in front of 80,000 fans at the MCG, it's just, I mean, it was a dream come true, but it's certainly a very different skill set. Mm. And again, it was just, there's so much in me that was like, this is terrifying. And I, mm. I don't know that I want to do this necessarily, but I know that if I don't say yes, I'm passing off an opportunity to represent and, and have mm. people like me feel seen and feel like part of, mm. you know, like the fandom and a sports fandom is legitimized and it's so, like, it was such a beautiful moment at the World Cup final because it was England and Pakistan. And the last time those two teams played in Melbourne or in the World Cup final was in 1992. And I was there as a six-year-old. Oh, wow. Full yeah. circle moment. Yeah. And I just, so what do you think six-year-old Rana would think about current day Rana game day hosting such a huge event? What would she say to you, do you think? She would be like, how did you get to be so cool? I I love that cool. But I I think it's pretty cool. Any sports now be like you and I think it's pretty cool. (laughs) Or anyone that loves media work. (laughs) Well, yeah, like I would always be, just getting away from my daughter, I would always be like anywhere, anything, any show, any sport, anytime I'm in an audience. I'm always looking off to the side to see mm. like what, what's the crew doing? Like mm. wondering what, you know, the people on the microphone, what they really like, how do they do that? How do mm. they sound so smooth? Just wanting to always be part of the show. Mm. And so to finally be there and, and mm. to be honest, and this sounds really kind of naff, but really that there were little, it was because of Pakistan, there were little girls in hijabs, me giving me high fives over kind of the fence. And I just felt, I looked into their eyes and it felt so meaningful and right. And I just, like it it gives me goosebumps to know that they got to see that. And I Something that you wouldn't have seen at that age, I imagine. No, and going to the MCG always felt a little bit scary. I mean, mm. it's colossal and, and it probably does for little kids, but it always felt like we were entering some other world. Mm-hmm. You didn't and feel we like you quite were being told that you belong there. No, and, mm. and we'd go as a community and we'd kind of huddle together and you really felt like it was a different space. So to kind of break that down a little bit, mm. just, it feels so important and meaningful. As a Caucasian woman, it breaks my heart to hear that. And it's just interesting things that you don't even think of as someone that's never had to face that sort of adversity in the world. So I'm glad you touched on it. So you've got this big career. When does motherhood come into the picture? And how do you feel about that from the career point of view, firstly? Yeah, it's ebbed and flowed. So when I first became pregnant, I was at this primary school counselling and I really thought that. I would really lean into motherhood. Like I just had this vision of myself, of this, like kind of being this earth mother, I'd be at home. That would be it for me. I knew I'd have to keep working just financially, but Mm. that it would really take a backseat in my life and that I would want to be around and parenting and doing all of things. Um, And, and I had a very busy mother who worked a lot and, and motherhood felt like kind of a part-time thing for her as did career. Like it just, we were all, we all just sort of fit in however Mm. we fit in. And she just, it seemed busy. Not that I didn't think she loved her or anything, but I just Mm. felt like she had so much, so many other things she wanted to do. And so I think in my head, I had this idea that I wouldn't do that. Oh, interesting. Um, Yeah. I really thought, no, I'm going to be that mum that is at the excursions and is mm. baking the things. And then I became a mother. <laughs> <laughs> it's always a bit different to how I pictured it. <laughs> yeah, like I was really lucky. I had at the school I worked at, you know, we could take a year off and some of it was paid, some of it wasn't, but it was a pretty good deal. So I had a full year of maternity leave, which was amazing. And I really thought, okay, I don't need a whole year. Like I'm going to just 
part of the year I'll settle into motherhood and then I'll write a book or I'll, you know, I'll start to freelance and write opinion pieces or something. I knew I would do something. And then I didn't. I spent a whole year just working it out. Like I got to the end of that first year and thought, okay, I've done nothing but just be a mum. And I was, that is such a motherhood statement, by the way, <laughs> I think being a mum, like it's Doesn't not this it? extraordinarily huge I know. Oh, all I've done is be a mum for a year. How I know. inefficient am I? <laughs> so pejorative. I know. Terrible. <laughs> and, and, and ridiculous than I thought I could fit anything else in. Like I look mm-hmm. at you and I think it's amazing. I am, I'm floored whenever any mother, new mother says, ends up doing more than that because I just definitely eating into my sleep and by the help of my husband and the grandparents so don't worry it's not looking it's not looking clear-cut how I'm doing this (laughs) (laughs) well exactly right so that's what my life looks like I mean it it looks like a lot of balls dropping all the time you know neglecting a billion things I always you know, one of the best things my partner said, although he's probably regretting it now, was that, you know, if I, if in that first year, he was like, if I get, I walk in the door, because I would always be like, oh my God, I haven't made any food. Mm. My house is a mess. I'm so sorry. Like, I don't know what I've done all day, but I haven't been able to do anything else. Mm. And he was like, if you, if I walk in the door and the two of you are alive, like, mm. great. You've done your job. <laughs> You've done your job. Mm. that's it and so I sort of run with that a bit like I love that I just go okay well if the main things are there and mm. it, with glass balls are held up plastic yeah, balls exactly. dropped which is what another guest Yara Harry said yes, which I think is really good mm. I loved that now I probably and I do a lot like I squeeze work into every minute so mm-hmm. you know we do live in like we live a really messy house it's just the bottom mm. line which does mm. imp- like I won't lie it impacts a lot of things like mm. we then don't have my daughter's friends over because I'm like oh god the house is too messy or we don't do a lot I love of you for admitting that because a lot of parents would be too proud so that's good yes it's just like we've <laughs> like we've let go of a lot of things because of that and I'm in that place where I'm now re renegotiating a lot of that because I've gone really hard at career not even like in a conscious way it's just because of because I say yes and I take Mm. opportunities when they come up Mm. I I you know other things have had to kind of fall a bit so what I've always tried to do though is say to myself when stuff is happening at school I'll be there unless it's Mm. like completely immovable which happened once and my daughter won't let me forget it I missed an athletics day and she'll she'll never stop reminding me. How do you give yourself self-compassion in those moments? I'm not good at self-compassion. And that's that's the real work in progress. I think, Mm. again, my partner, like, God bless him, like, I'll I'll be reeling about something and he'll say, actually, it's fine. Your, Your inner guilt is what giving you grief like mm. a kid doesn't mind you were there you know like I'll, I'll turn up to something and I'll be the last parent that arrived or you know or I'll have to miss something but it's one thing out of 10 and and it he'll he'll remind me that actually it's just the narrative in my head mm. and and that's okay but mm. don't don't blow it out of proportion and so I have to kind of that's my big battle now and I'm starting mm. to get there because now I kind of go okay well but th- th- this is who I am like would I mm. what would I really change if I had my time again mm. and you oh. want to show up as yourself for your daughter so that she can then show up as herself as she continues to grow and I know that in that year I sort of went a bit bananas like mm. it didn't work at all it's the only mm. time I didn't I know that that wasn't right for me either. Mm. So I would always need something and it's just how much I dial it up and down. And so mm. I feel like I've gotten to a place now where I went hammer and tongue for a while. I could probably dial some of it back a bit. Mm. And how was the return to work for you? What did that look like in terms of the amount of days you took on, how you felt emotionally? Mm. Yeah, I... it. I went down to three days. Actually, I started at two days and then I 
very quickly went up to three. And that was perfect for me. I loved three days a week. It was sort of enough to kind of get work done and stuck Mm. in, but not so much that I couldn't balance everything else. Emotionally, it was really, really hard. Mm. I never, I'm never good at leaving my daughter. I'm never good at drop. I was never good at dropping her at childcare. Every single time, just tears in the car. Um, it got to the point where I had to say to my partner, like, you've got to do it. Like, I'm sorry, I'm going to be really selfish. But because you don't have this thing called mum guilt that for some reason I've been socialized to have, you're doing drop-offs and I'm doing pick-up because I get... I'll do the good end. Yeah, I'm going to give them fun (laughs) hugs and be the hero at the end of the day. I'm saviour. You're back. I'm back. But I carried her in my entire body in my mind, so Mm. I get this bit. That worked really well for me. And very fair, I I, I thought it was I think I'm going to take that advice when my son goes to daycare. I recommend it because weirdly, like, he didn't care. Mm. But he didn't care, but it was fine for him, even if she struggled. He was yeah. like, yeah, okay, but you'll be all right. And he walked out. And that was amazing. Do why do we do that to ourselves? I don't know what we do. I don't know why we've mm. all told ourselves that that's bad, but we have. Mm. Mm. But, but we've all got that internalized in us that if we send our kids to somebody else to look after, we're bad parents or mm. we're going to be neglected in some way. And it's just not true it's not true for everybody might be true for some I don't know but I don't know why we do that but the the more we can break that down I think better but anyway I was I was not good at that I was not good at leaving her but I had to very quickly learn to compartmentalize and Mm -hmm. then I think once I learned how to do that it was okay and I but I still I still feel that working in sport was when it really the rubber really hit the road for me I went up to four days. It's a very on-the-go job. It was mm. weekends. That felt like a much bigger sacrifice. My daughter was about to turn two. And I didn't realise. I sort of went, oh, well, I've had my year of maternity leave. I've done the mothering bit. Now it sort of doesn't matter. And it doesn't. Mm. I didn't anticipate how much I would still miss how much that would mean to me. That's so interesting. It's like you sort of think when you get through that first roadblock of getting them into childcare that you're then going to be okay. But it's like you're still mothering and you're still working and you're still figuring that all out. I don't know what I thought would happen. Like it's mm. like I thought it all ended after she turned one, like we had the mm. big party and then and I'd, I'd just know exactly how it all works, which is mm. of course isn't the case, you know. We were toilet training. <laughs> mm-hmm. That was a minefield. She was, you know, learning new things as a two-year-old. Like those years, mm-hmm. every year is important, right? So I guess what I learned was there's never a good time. Like mm-hmm. always something going on. And eventually I thought, okay, well, there was no time to start this job. You just got to make it work. Mm. And so... Your work is really big work. It's not like clock off, tools down. I'm not thinking about it. It affects your life. It's a part of your identity. It's a part of bringing up your daughter in a world that is more inclusive. How do you balance work with parenting when you do such big work? It's a really good question. I don't know. I mean, one, I think the really honest answer is that I don't, share my work at home much. Mm. Which I don't know if that's a good thing or not. Not I know that sometimes I do that to the extent to which I think my partner and probably my daughter as well can feel a bit kind of shut out of it, mm-hmm. that it's over there. But I really rarely bring it home with me. Mm. My parents I'd say in a lot of ways that's a good thing because you're then being present at home. Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that... Mm. Oh, I mean, my face is in my phone a lot. <laughs> it is always, you know, mum's like, oh God, mum's doing a phone call or mum's mm. emailing or something, mm. talking to someone on the phone, texting. But I rarely kind of, it's not an integrated thing. And I, I reckon that that's learnt from my parents who were both doctors who would park it all at the door and it just was, it just mm. never crossed over in that way. So for me, that works. I've had to realize that maybe I need to kind of let them in a little bit. And I, I guess just, as your daughter gets older too and sort of 
more aware of the world and what exactly. work you're actually doing. Yeah. Mm. You know, you know, she'll she'll know that mum's on TV, but she kind of doesn't care. <laughs> it's like, like, all right, when you're coming home. Uh, but so that, to be honest, that's how. Like, I just mm. don't. And I think the hard part for me is that when, because my work is so connected to racism, sexism, marginalization, if mm. my daughter has any of those experiences, I think that's going to be quite challenging for me mm. because. It's all well and good to do the advocacy work out there, but when it's in your own home, I imagine it's much harder. Exactly. And and mm. to be honest, it happened on in her first week of existence. We, I really struggled to breastfeed straight off and I went to a lactation nurse. I had a C-section, mm. was already very ginger, you know, day three of her existence. Mm. And by the way, day three blues are just. Oh, don't ever take me back there. The work. The worst. It's a scary time to be alive. It was, it's pr- properly like I can feel it in my body now as I'm talking. Um, oh, no, me too. It makes me actually feel a bit sick. <laughs> right? I, it just, I don't know why that had yeah. to happen, but it happened. And it really, I really had the blues that day. Mm. And I went to see the lactation nurse at the hospital. And she, and, and I'd bought this beautiful little onesie for my daughter. I didn't buy anything because I had a lot of hand-me-downs from mm. my sisters, but I bought this one thing and it had a hood and I finally that day put it on her because I was really excited and I put the little hood on her. I'm, you know, I'm a hijab-wearing woman. I cover my hair as a Muslim. And so I walked into the lactation nurse's office. She took one look at me and then one look at Hawa and said, she's too young to be wearing you can I know it's your religion but you can do whatever you want with her she can do what she wants when she's older but she's a baby she doesn't need to wear and I just what a waste of advice as well like I'm coming here I'm coming to you for lactation consulting not life consulting or society consulting right it just broke Mm. me Mm. and I just when you're already feeling so depleted I thought it's day three of her life I remember mm. really clearly thinking, oh, what have I done? Like, brought this kid into the world and on day three she's experiencing mm. racism. Like, It's such an interesting point you raised to that what have I done feeling because that's exactly how I felt with the baby blues. I knew it would be a lot to birth something that you love more than anything, but it really was a feeling of what have I done from just an emotional like, oh, my God, I'm responsible I'm going to leave this baby on this earth one day. So I can't even imagine that added layer of feeling marginalized in a community. It's huge. I know this is really a bit raw, but I remember feeling, I remember thinking, oh God, like the world needs to change. Mm. When my daughter was born and one of the first things I looked at was what does her, what's her skin color because my partner is mm. white. And I felt relief when I saw that she was quite light. Oh, my God. And that, it just blew my mind. Like, that was the feel. Like, that was. Of all the things that you should be feeling at that point, society pulled you to that feeling. That is, I can't, yeah, I can't even articulate how angry that makes me feel for you. This is actually the perfect segue to a really big question I have for you. As a Muslim woman. You've seen underrepresentation in media for both your culture and your gender. What has that experience taught you about how you want to raise your daughter and her career ambitions or just life ambitions and life outlooks? It's such a good question because I get asked about being a Muslim woman in the world and a brown woman in the world a lot, but Mm. no one really asks me what does that mean in terms of my parenting and how Mm. I parent and what I want to foster in her. I see there's two things for me. I, I was a hundred percent shaped by my mother. Like, mm. and obviously like that's obvious we all are, but it, mm. I can really see that growing up, watching her work and parent and run the household. And, you know, my parents had very, very 
sort of rigid gender roles as well. So she really did it all. And I saw the good and bad of that. And, but I, it never occurred to me that that wasn't what my life would be. Like the Mm. idea of staying at home and not working felt really radical to me. Like Mm. neutral was work and, Mm. and parenting. Like that was just a given. So I sort of, I want to, I want my daughter to understand that all of the choices are at her fingertips and that they're all valid in their own ways. And Mm. that I don't want her to feel railroaded into any particular choice. So Mm. I think that all of my experiences, whether it's through a race perspective or a female perspective, it's about teaching her that you have choice. Mm. I love you for saying that too, because even with this podcast, I'm so challenged with how to voice that while I'm trying to, I guess, support working mothers in particular, it's not because I think that that's the only thing you should do. It's just that a lot of people financially have to work and a lot of mothers want to, but I don't want to make it out like a career woman is the only woman and the only valid woman. Totally. And I think because I am a career woman and a career is so important to me, I often get the pushback certain women or parts of society where their assumption is that I'm devaluing other people's choices Mm. as well. And it is something that I think as women, we have to really get better at in, in really lifting each other up in Mm. one of the choices we make Mm. and validating each other's choices. One of my sisters, you know, left a career to look after kids at home and I know like she has really internalized a lot of messaging in society mm. that really does validate career women and, and the juggle and the mm. hustling and, and for her, it's like, no, like mm. you know, her kids are exceptional. She's an amazing woman. She does mm. so much volunteering as well. I have to say, like, it's just, it's sort of, it, it, I hate that she also now lives in that headspace too. Mm, Because raising good kids is like one of the most important parts of society, right? Like they're the next generation and how they treat other people and show up in the world is entirely important. And I always say to her, oh, I'm, I'm working like this and I'm doing this because I don't, actually don't know how else to be. Like this is Mm. kind of how I'm wired Mm. and I would actually be a terrible person if I didn't. Mm. The part of this that is just about actually just what I need to be Mm. is the best person I can be. Mm. It's not about anybody else's choices. So I I guess that's that's what I want for my daughter. And and in particular, that she doesn't have to accept any kind of station in life. And I, yeah, I want, so I want choice for her. But ultimately, like ultimately, ultimately, I want her in in her identity and being to feel like as an Australian, she's just as valid as mm. anybody else. And mm. then when she looks in the mirror, when she says I'm Australian, that she feels that in the mm. core of her being and not because she's had to shape shift or mm. Mm. love cricket or love mm. footy, you know, or but because she fully believes and everybody else around her fully believes that being Australian means a million different things. Mm -hmm. And she's a valuable member of society. Yeah. And I think, you know, that's, I I look at the choices we've made for her from schooling to the activities, to the conversations we have with her, it is all around belonging and Mm. helping her to find a place in this society. And it's just so, it, (laughs) I can't believe how much of my life is actually kind of set up around that, but it really was a core experience for me. And, and, you know, I came of age with 9-11 and I really didn't realize the impact that had on me and my generation. I was talking to someone the other day about it and we were just like, because the young Muslim kids coming up now Mm. haven't had that experience. Mm. So really it's just a particular generation of us who, I mean, they have other experiences, but, but Islamophobia and the focus on Muslims in the world was really Mm -hmm. kind of when I grew up and 
and the way we've all internalized that mm-hmm. now has really then flowed on to how we parent and how we kind of live in the work we do. So it's That's funny. a huge one. Well, it's funny, you know, in terms of parenting, that's when I'm, I mean, I've, I've probably let go of the resentment now, but I know when I first became a parent, it really annoyed me that I didn't like, especially kind of in mother's group and others being around other friends. I used to just think, I just want to be a parent. I don't want to have to think about all these other layers. Why do I have to do that? You know, totally the weight of responsibility that has inherently fallen on you because of society, not because of you and not because of your culture, but because of the way society has made you feel about those things. And even in media, it's so funny because I I pitch myself every now and then for segments on things or, you know, I think about what it is I actually would love to do in the media. One of them is parenting. I would love to be, you know, a parent and a parenting expert or something. And I think, wow, yeah, when was the last time I saw someone who looked like me do the parenting chat on, you know, your breakfast TV show? Mm. When do we get to be the experts or Mm. the average parent? Yeah, it's like take me out of that diversity inclusion for once. Like I'm not just a specialist in being marginalised. I'm a human (laughs) and I have a lot to offer. Just on that, and you can pull me up if I'm asking this in a wrong way. When you get asked for media opportunities, do you ever grapple with if you're being asked out of a tokenism versus my voice is valued here? Like, does that go through your head or am I asking something out of line there? No, no, not at all. I ask myself every single time, even, you know, we talked about the match day hosting. That was actually a really big issue for me because it was sort of the first time I felt like, yeah, I'm probably getting this because of the way I look and how do I feel about that? And I had to really square it away. And, Mm. you know, it was, it was a few things like everybody, I had to sort of say to myself, well, everybody gets gigs, you know, based on something. Mm. And I really came to the point where it was like, well, if I'm getting it because of that, I don't know that that's the case, but if I'm mm. getting it because of that, it's what I do with it. Mm. And, you know, let me then show that it's possible. And it's a, it's a catch 22 for me because I'm the one pushing for more representation. Mm. So then to get it and to get it on the basis of representation, it's sort of a bit like, I guess this is what I'm asking for. But I have to hope that by doing it and doing it for those reasons, the Mm. next person coming through is getting it because they're good at what they do. And not wondering, which by the way, you are so talented. We produced a kids cricket show together and you and Andy Sunderland as the hosts were amazing. So I hope that, you know, that people are coming to you for your voice and your enthusiasm and your talent, but I can totally see how you would question that in your mind because we all question things in so many different ways. And I think even being hired as a woman in sport, you're sometimes like, oh, have they picked me out of a, you know, safety net and a saving face thing? So even though I have no doubt that you're getting picked for your talent, I can totally understand that you would jostle with what, what's this, what's the end goal for whoever's hiring me? What are they trying to do? But, and the other thing, then I go, but then also being hired for diversity isn't a bad thing either. No, that's the goal, right? Yeah. We want that to happen. Exactly. So mm. I kind of go, well, I don't actually don't want to devalue my own diversity. You know, mm. I'm just sad that it, we need to do it, I guess, in the first place. So you And that you need it. to have those thoughts of why have I been hired rather than just being hired. But it's it comes back to what you're saying as well about the weight of responsibility of parenting that you have versus someone like me that's a Caucasian blonde woman in a mostly... Caucasian society that you have those extra responsibilities that you're saying, why do I, why do I have to worry about this? Why should I? Let me yeah. just it. And it's, so, you know, it's, I know how it sounds, but it, it's just that added, it's just an, a different type of worry that you have for your child mm. and perception and, mm. you know, and, and I, there are times where I think, okay, is, is my presence going to hold my daughter back? You know, mm. I know. My parents had that worry that Mm. there was an element of 
I'm sorry, we're the one, we're the odd ones out. Like, you know, in the pair, in the. So unfair. It makes me annoyed. I'm annoyed for for your parents. I, to my parents' credit, you know, I'm so grateful for the lessons Mm. because they really, they modeled being proud of who you are and Mm. educating. Like every step of the way, my mum would come into school and say, Okay, so this is what we're about. And let me tell you, you know, because I went to an Anglican school, so there was a lot of like, well, my daughter's not going to, you know, probably say the prayers because we're Mm -hmm. Muslim and and this is what it means to us. And let me help you understand. She wasn't combative. She just every step of the way helped educate, gave us language to say, okay, this is what you say when you're fasting for Ramadan, Mm. how you can explain. Yeah. Don't hide it. Let's just use this language instead. Yeah, exactly. That's amazing. And that's actually the perfect segue to my last question. Last night you put up an amazing series of Instagram stories about your mum. Can you tell us about her career? And I think she might be retiring. Yes. So I think she's had a very long, I think it might've been a 50 year career and what that done for you as an inspiration source, I guess. Yeah. Amazing. Yesterday she did, had her last, saw her last patient as a doctor Mm. after 50 years of doing it. She came to Australia with my dad in the early 1970s. They met at medical school. They had an arranged marriage but they were studying together at uni. So as far as kind of that era of arranged marriages go, it's quite a like romantic story. Yeah. And was that quite radical for your mum to be studying at that time or not necessarily? Look, it wasn't common. And even when she came here, you know, there was a very small community of Indians here and the women didn't work. Mm. So even growing up, she was an outlier in our community you know, not just that she worked, very few of the women did, but that she was a professional, um, you know, and, and quite career driven and she wore a headscarf, which back then really wasn't common. Mm. So she always, she's always been a trailblazer in that way. She worked in mental health and psychiatry. Like I said earlier, you know, her parents had very rigid gender roles. So it was always on her to kind of fit her career into parenting. Mm. And like, it, you know, there was no concept of like outside of school hours, you do anything. It was like, whatever you can do within, like while the kids are at school, go for it. But the expectation is that you're home to make dinner, to get it home mm. and done. And she did. She, wow. she didn't, she kind of distilled achieved so much despite all of that and the thing that I think she's really proud of and I'm certainly proud of is that and I remember this so clearly you know she took it on herself to just go around to hospitals and community health organizations to teach them about culturally appropriate appropriate patient care amazing at that time nobody was doing I bet I bet you most of society wasn't even interested in it which is ridiculous So to advocate that would have been huge. She noticed that patient, you know, there was a culturally growing, culturally diverse community and they weren't really being looked after. And Mm -hmm. she often ended up in the position of advocating or stepping in Mm -hmm. or answering questions. So she just put together like a booklet and then started to just go to hospitals and say, you know, here's this. And then that snowballed because they were like, well, actually, this is really helpful. So she started to do, you know, speeches and talks wow. to different hospitals and she just kind of did it. She mm-hmm. just, it wasn't, you know, anything that she then scaled or asked for any recognition. Mm. But, you know, I think that generation are just, they just get stuff done, right? Mm. Anyway, she, after 50 years, she's kind of finally hanging up the stethoscope and, I asked her about how she's feeling about it and she was like, this is great. And I really was surprised by that because I think it's been such a part of her identity for so long. I think about mm, stopping work and retiring and that kind of terrifies me, but she's like, I'm ready. I'm ready for it to be done. I'm really happy. thing that I love though is she's not, she's already like, she's sort of slowed down. So it was, it's been a peter out, but uh, she's just filled, she's just as busy. She's filled mm. her life with 
like studying, studying mm. a new language, teaching classes, like just. <laughs> so she's not really retiring. Just she's not retiring. Time. She's like retiring from paid work, but she's just going to be as busy as ever. So yeah, and I imagine there's a few grandkids too. Yeah, there's thirteen. Oh, just a few. Love it. Yeah, That's yeah, amazing. Rana, this has been amazing. I'm just going to say that I love you and I feel like you're like the big sister energy in the world. I don't have a big <laughs> sister and when I chat to you, it's got the calming influence of chatting to a big sister. Thank you very much for coming on. If people want to find you online, where should they go? I am at Rana B. Hussein on Instagram and Rana Huss on Twitter, but you can you'll find me. And I just want to say to you, I'm just... I mean, I don't have a little sister, so this is a great setup. I'm really happy to go with it. I'm so proud of you. I mean, this is incredible. And I saw you and little Ray was in your tummy. <laughs> and I'm just in, so impressed with what you've been able to do with this podcast. So, Oh, thank you. Well, impressed too. does not even cut how I feel about you. So that is very flattering. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to Ready or Not. If you liked the show, please tell your friends, subscribe or write a review. You can also find us on Instagram at readyornot.pod. In acknowledging the traditional owners of country throughout Australia, each episode I'll be doing a shout out to an Indigenous business or charity doing great things. This week it's Pay the Rent, a collective based on the lands of the Kulin Nation in Victoria, Australia. The Pay the Rent Collective acts as a centralised distribution body which can make decisions about how best to support Aboriginal people, supporting grassroots First Nations people working to strengthen any one of the five interconnected pillars of Aboriginal sovereignty and belonging. These are land, law, kinship, ceremony and language. You can check them out online by searching Pay the Rent and contribute as you please. That's all for today. See you next time.